WBZ original. Uh, the dictionary has a podcast. Merriam-Webster? Merriam-Webster. Oh, fabulous. It's I great. bet they do. I oh, bet it's damn great. interesting, and you too. know what? I would listen to it. I would, too. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everybody. The first full week of June here. Welcome to Studio BZ. I'm Paula Eben, joined by John, John Keller. Keller. Paula, Hi, John. Good to see you. To uh, see happy you. June to you. Thanks I had so my much. winter coat on uh, last Monday, so maybe you can explain to me what the hell is going on, as President Trump might say. I but know. Eric I, Fisher promises warm weather is coming. But. I'm going to wring his little chicken neck if he doesn't <laughs> deliver. I'm a little dubious at this point. And hello, Jonathan Case, our producer here. Hey, Jonathan. In Hi. Studio BZ studio. I'm going to cut this out as always. Oh, don't. <laughs> Stop don't. It. They need to know you're there. Um, so, John, what are we talking about? This week on Studio BZ, it wouldn't be a presidential campaign cycle without an egotistical, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Potomac fever-ridden Massachusetts politician sniffing around as a possible candidate. And lo and behold, former Governor Deval Patrick is doing just that. I've got some serious thoughts on that, and I'll share them with you coming up. You do have to wonder if people around the country see Massachusetts and think, see D-M-A and think, oh no, <laughs> not again. Is this going to work? There's, they don't call us massholes for no reason, Paula. <laughs> and then? Then, uh, sports betting legalized by a ruling of the Supreme Court. Now, this week, the first state that didn't already have it, like uh, Nevada, uh, is jumping in. Delaware will uh, begin legalized sports betting this month. What about Massachusetts? Are we next? We'll talk with Boston College gambling expert, Father Richard McGowan. He's amazing. But first, how big a disaster was Hurricane Maria? The media can't seem to talk about Puerto Rico as much as we need to. Uh, we turned to the really talented CBS News correspondent David Begno, the winner of the prestigious George Polk Award this year, for his coverage. He has gone back and back and back to the credit of CBS News, reporting for both Evening News, Sunday morning, CBS This Morning, uh, to go back to Puerto Rico and keep the spotlight on the suffering there and what a crisis it is. And John, just before we begin, there, we have this interesting clip from CNN where they attempt to talk about how the media isn't covering Puerto Rico. But listen. Uh, I do think we should address here, even though we have waited till the 27th minute of the hour, my fault, for not talking about this Harvard study. Why is it that Roseanne so overshadowed the Harvard study about the estimated Puerto Rican death toll? Why is it that Puerto Rico has been shortchanged by the press? I think a couple of reasons. One, we are uh, addicted to celebrities. I mean, in a sick way. We've been that way for a long a time. A celebrity culture. Yeah, we're a yeah. celebrity culture, so that's one thing. What she said so went to the guts of the culture war in this country, and it was so ugly, even by the standards of social media rhetoric today. It was so shocking what so, she wrote. And we're on to and talking about Roseanne. And, and <laughs> even though we started out talking. And, you know, all credit to, Dave, uh, to Brian Stelter, of course, his show is about the media. You know, it's one of those little segments where the media is covering itself, which I have a sibling who always says this is the nadir of any story when the media starts commenting and reporting on itself. Right. But uh, in light of all of this, last week that Harvard study hit, you would think, like a ton of bricks, the number four, over 4,000 estimated deaths in Puerto Rico. The interesting 
issue that has come up about the study in the last couple of days is the methodology because the Harvard authors used a uh, system which is used by epidemiologists where they went to the island, they did interviews in certain specific areas, then extrapolated it out to the population of the island. They say now, they believe that the deaths from Hurricane Maria could be as low as 800 or as many as 8,000. The 4,000 number is the median. That's the midpoint. Yeah. That's the midpoint. The official number uh, from the government is less than 100. You'll hear that. So I wanted to talk to David Begno because he's had the ground truth, right? As we say, he's been back to Puerto Rico so many times, and he has some interesting thoughts, not only about that number, but about what residents and citizens of Puerto Rico have been telling him. And, you know, this whole mess speaks to the curious and, in some cases, a sad status of Puerto Rico. Uh, it's, it's a commonwealth. Mm-hmm. They are uh, American Puerto citizens. Puerto Ricans are American citizens, and yet it is not widely regarded as a part of America because it's not a state. And that's something that may well have deeper roots in racism or in ethnic bias or in parochialism. But that's another underlying issue right. here it's we're an underlying talking issue. about. Although, listen for what Begno says. Uh, when I asked him specifically about that, it's really, really interesting, uh, his thoughts on the state of mind of people in Puerto Rico. But I will just say, going back quickly to what Brian Stelter pointed out, it's it's like people in Puerto Rico can't catch a break. Uh, their grid was already compromised years ago. They had declared bankruptcy. Then in September, when the hurricane hits, what is the president tweeting about? The NFL kneeling controversy with the anthem. And so the media is focused on that. No one can believe the president is tweeting about that. Last week, when that number came out from the Harvard study, uh, everyone was focused on Roseanne Barr. So it, it just doesn't seem as though Puerto Rico can, if you will, win a new cycle and get enough attention for the fact that there are still thousands and thousands of people without power. They seem kind of resigned to that fact. And uh, they still need so, you know, he admits billions have been spent, but rebuilding that island is essential. And here we are upon another hurricane season already. Just to give people who haven't been following the blow by blow, who might be listening, just where things stand right now in terms of power outages and what you're hearing from people on the ground. In terms of power outages, nearly nine months after the storm, you still have about 10,000 people who don't have power. And those 10,000 people have been told it could be another two months before they get it. Wow. You know, it's this has gone far beyond anything the governor wanted, far beyond anything the federal government wanted. Um, And it has become it's become the ongoing embarrassment for the island of Puerto Rico. Now, look, let's put it in context. The electrical grid was a mess, dilapidated, weathered, old, neglected, mistreated, underfunded. We could go on and on. So you say in a way people there are almost used to this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, listen, if, if, there's, if there's one thing that is the resounding answer that everybody sort of says in their own way, it's that we're always treated like second-class citizens and it's not going to change. I mean, in fact, I would oftentimes find myself more angry than the people I was interviewing who didn't have electricity. Yeah. And they would make excuses and they would – the resignation in their resilience 
I found to be staggering. Mm. And it remains. I remember being in Yabucoa near where the storm made landfall just a week ago. And a woman every day for the last eight months has used this harness device to haul her husband out of bed. He can't walk. He's bedridden. He's a cancer survivor. Mm. And she hauls him onto the front porch every day. And there they sit from 9 to 6 p.m. like clockwork. And then so the mosquitoes don't, you know, chew him all up. Mm -hmm. She hauls him back inside in a house where they use the flashlight on their phone to get him back into a bed. And they sit there for the night and sleep in their sweat. Uh, Now, listen, it's an island nation. It's Mm -hmm. not as miserable as, say, you know, the Texas heat. But it is something that if you and I were to take a field trip and you didn't have the exposure to the island like I've had working there and being there, you would... You would be relentlessly upset mm. at what they're having to deal with. It, it, it seems to keep missing some crucial news cycles, doesn't it? I, I mean, I've, I've heard you in other interviews mentioning that even last September, it, it was kind of overshadowed by the NFL kneeling controversy. Uh, last week, when this latest number from the Harvard study that came out, which we'll get into, uh, even that was kind of overshadowed by the Roseanne Barr coverage. It is an island nation. It's not New Orleans. It's not Houston. And so because it's down there, it, it just seems to not get the continuous A block coverage that people are used to of a natural a national disaster getting. That's that 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 that's fair. But but you know, for example, when you say island nation, the thing is, it's not a nation. Well, right, not a it's nation, a but an island. Right, right, right. It's a, but, and, and, and I'm, I, I don't mean to correct you mm. or say no, you're no. wrong, but it's sort of that underlying reference that people will use a nation. And granted, Puerto Ricans do too. They call it their own nation. Sure. They, they have their own flag. Not all of them want to be a state, but a majority of Puerto Ricans have voted in the past to become a state. Uh, in terms of attention, look, I'll be quite honest with you. Thank God for social media. Because if I was dependent to tell this story only on television, I would be woefully unhappy because, listen, to the credit of my folks, you know, the CBS Evening News and CBS This Morning's got to cover every story around the world. Right, right. You know? Yep. But you've continually gone back. Well, absolutely. And so to the credit of my folks, they've made it a priority, but nobody can control how much I tweet or Facebook, and I do it daily because I think it's that important. Sure. And, and you know, you obviously have been very careful, as you say, about not editorializing. You are there to cover the enormity of this damage, of this ongoing crisis. From people there, what do you hear about how much they think racism plays into this story? I'll be honest with you. Not one Puerto Rican has said to me, this is... Uh, racist. Now, now I'm not talking about the social media traffic. Right. I'm talking about Puerto Ricans face to face, me interviewing them. Let's talk about the number because of the Harvard study last week that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it's the number everyone is seeing now on Twitter uh, in coverage. Uh, it's a little bit more than four. That the the estimate is the death count could be more than four thousand when the official government number is sixty eight. Sixty four. Sixty four. Could be. There could be from the Harvard study is 8,000, right? Right, right. It could be be as low as 800, as high as 8,000, a little over 4,000 was the median. Explain why the coverage of that number has become a little bit controversial. 
Well, because when you look at the Harvard study, that is the middle. That is where they believe. And, and these are not the words. These are I, I spent 30 minutes on the phone with two of the researchers up near Cambridge, and I spent two hours with one of the lead authors on the ground in San Juan. And what he said is you have this giant swing, right? And let mm. me be the first to tell you, math was not my subject. So I'm telling it to you as <laughs> That's best why we're I journalists, David. Correct. <laughs> So right. So so the as he under as he as I can appreciate what he said to me, the swing is so giant from eight hundred to eight thousand because it gives you that range. However, they believe that the most accurate in the middle, what they can predict and say now based on the survey of everything, is that forty six hundred number, roughly right there. So that's just not a number that they just plucked and they said, Oh, that that's you know, that's in the middle, so it shouldn't it shouldn't ruffle too many feathers. They are sticking to that. And, and what the guy kept saying to me is, he goes, you guys are all stuck on this 4,600 number. We think it's higher. Right. They but 4,600 is what we feel safe, what we feel safe settling on based on everything. The interesting thing to me is the New York Times piece over the weekend that, that sort of wanted to clarify that the number the Times has been using is a little over 1,000 because they only looked at mortality rates in September and October, right? And this study went into December and, and later through this year. So do you, are you concerned that as people start to sort of in this time frame of fake news, when people start to see varying numbers here and there, that they're just being lied to, and if they're being lied to, why is that? I don't. I don't know that. And listen, I've seen all the traffic over the last few days about this. I don't know that people feel like they're lied to. I think people feel like someone isn't doing a hard enough job to figure out the answer sooner. Period. Right. Now, having said that. The government has said 64, right? And I interviewed Hector Pescara, the man who's the head of public safety, who was in charge of certifying, uh, the overseeing certification of death following the storm. He would get offensive if you suggested the number would be higher. He would get mad about it, right? But now the government wants to say, well, we knew it was going to go higher. Here's the bottom line. The government put out the statistics on Friday, which showed there was roughly 1,397 deaths in September, October, November, December. Of 2017, right? 1,397, more than the same time period the year before. Now, Paula, we can't say that all of those deaths were directly attributable to the storm. However, it's a sharp increase, and there's one thing that happened during that time period, and it was a Category 4 storm. The bottom line is the government didn't put out those numbers until they buckled under pressure. From the media and from the academics last week. That's the only reason those numbers came out, no matter what they want to say. From from your experience being on the island so many times, do you think Puerto Rico can get its financial house in order and and repair that infrastructure? Everything I've been told is it can, but there was no way to get it done in time for this hurricane season. And I don't know if they can get it done in turn in time for the next hurricane season in 2019. What do you want people to think of this summer as the Puerto Rico story continues? What, what do you want people to know most yourself? It's a good question. Um, I want people to know that Puerto Rico, I want people to know that Puerto Rico 
has not gotten the same kind of service that other states have when it comes to natural disasters. And that is coming from a journalist who has covered natural disasters from lava flows at a volcano to tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes in the states and um, in other places like Ecuador. Uh, Puerto Rico has not gotten the same kind of attention. And that's what I want people to know. Uh, I'm not asking people to um, judge whether the president has been right or the governor has been right at the mayor of San Juan. The bottom line is Puerto Rico deserved more. They still deserve more. They didn't get it. And I don't think they're getting it now. Um, we continue, but just, just be, I think Paula, when I meet people, I just appreciate when they have a sense of knowledge about what's going on in Puerto Rico, because I think we as citizens have a responsibility to know Okay, if you don't pick up the phone to call your person who's your legislator and tell them you want to see something. Okay, if you don't donate. Okay, if you don't go there to volunteer. But the bottom line is at least know what the heck is going on because the people who live on that island are Americans. They carry U.S. passports. They can travel to Boston tomorrow and vote for your mayor and vote for president. But when they're on the island, they cannot vote for president, and they have no representation in Congress like you do in terms of a congressman, woman, or senator who can actually vote. They have a representative who is their voice, but she has no voting authority. Just know that. Just be aware. I think that in, that in itself is a responsibility that we can give our fellow Americans who live on that island. Well said. Well, David Begnaud, you earned every inch of that George Polk Award for public service. And as a CBS station, we're proud of you. We appreciate all of your hard work and your knowledge of the situation in Puerto Rico. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to bring us up to date and talk about these issues. It's so important. My pleasure. BZ is such an important station for us. Uh, we love Boston, the surrounding area. And if you guys get to New York City this weekend for the Puerto Rican Day Parade, uh, say hello. I'll be there. I can't wait to celebrate the island. So, John, we know the cycle, the, 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 the political cycle really never ends in your world. You're always gearing up for, for except, the mid- Except when I go on vacation. Except Paul. on vacation. But here come the midterms in yeah. six months. And then right behind it, we'll be ready to start talking about 2020. And lo and behold, whose name has popped up? Well, look, you've you got to have at least one, if not many more than one, candidates from Massachusetts in any presidential race. Because as everyone knows... We're the hub uh, of the universe. We're the hub of the universe. We're the Athens of America. Mm, true. Uh, we're the ne plus ultra, if you will, of <laughs> American politics, thought, culture, sports, you name it. Okay, the weather stinks. Yes. But, Not um, to mention our sense of noblesse oblige. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, sarcasm aside, former Governor Deval Patrick has been dropping hints for a while that he's looking over a possible run in 2020. Uh, he apparently is sort of the, the candidate of choice for now of a lot of the expats from the Obama administration. Did, am I right about that? Did David Axelrod run his gubernatorial campaign? He did. Right. Who he went was on the consultant and then he yeah. was, and of course, they both went to Harvard Law School, although they were several years apart. And while they weren't friends in law school, they became right. friends and political allies. Obama ripped off some of Deval Patrick's campaign speeches. Right. Remember that whole and thing? And great spots right. that David Axelrod had done for Deval Patrick. Right, exactly. So uh, Politico uh, reported uh, just the other day uh, 
that John Walsh, who was a key figure in Patrick's two successful runs for governor here in Massachusetts. And he was very well liked. Uh, oh, yeah. Great guy. Very wired in. Still close with the governor. He said, quote, he's really thinking about running, mm -hmm. but hasn't decided yet. Mm -hmm. He's going to go on the stump this fall on behalf of other candidates and I assume kind of test the water while he's sure. out there. And uh, let me first up front stipulate a couple of things. Deval Patrick is a fine man, a fine beloved fa at Harvard, fine father, yeah. husband. Uh, 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 in many ways, uh, did a lot of good things mm -hmm. as governor of this state. Ethics reform uh, comes to mind. Certainly, an excellent retail campaigner. I've seen him work crowds one-on-one -on -one with yeah, people, people like brilliantly and, and a very polished speaker uh, who is much admired for that. Okay, having said all that, De uh, a Deval Patrick run for the presidency strikes me as one of the worst ideas of the current political What are cycle. some of the issues right off the bat? Well, first of all, the Boston Globe did statewide polling down the stretch run of the Baker-Coakley race in uh, 2014, and they threw in Deval Patrick into the mix. Mm -hmm. And the results came back that uh, e even a majority of Democrats, let alone independents and Republicans, thought of the Pat Patrick as, at best, an average governor. Hmm. Very few Not high marks. applied superlatives to his time in office. And I bet if you went back and took that poll at the end of the winter after Patrick left office, when the MBTA, which he had serially mismanaged, collapsed under the weight of all that snow, I bet those numbers would have been even worse. So he's really not held in uh, high regard, uh, uh, in especially well, high tier, regard. Top tier regard. He's not considered a top tier talent by the people who know him best here in Massachusetts. His record, while as I say, it does contain some bright spots, certainly contains some negatives. And what what I really want to get back to is the very notion that Deval Patrick uh, is going to sell, even within the Democratic Party universe, as the party standard bearer two years from now, just defies all rational belief. Back during, I believe it was Patrick's second term, you may remember, Paula, periodically rumors would float that because of their close relationship, President Obama was going to reach in and pluck him out of Massachusetts For a cabinet post. to be in the cabinet. Right. At one point, they were talking about him as a Supreme Court nominee. Mm -hmm. I was in the newsroom working the 11 o'clock news the night that rumor got picked Percolated. up and reported as fact by one of our less fastidious competitors. <laughs> Which shall remain nameless. Yeah, I'll tell you later. And... Uh, <laughs> So they asked me to check it out. So I called up a, a, a top aide to the governor at his right hand uh, at, at this point in time and asked him about it. And he just started laughing. And what he told me was, look, no one loves Deval Patrick more than I do. Sure. But the very notion that he could survive a confirmation hearing yeah. is beyond belief. Why? Because his record is way, way too liberal. Too liberal. Pe people lose all perspective, I think, when they are members of the Democratic Party within Massachusetts, of what goes on across the country. Think of uh, M Michael Dukakis not understanding that attacks on him 
for being from Brookline, a town that once voted to no longer say the Pledge of Allegiance right. before their We're gonna their town meetings. He never he poo pooed that because. Here in his comfy cocoon, no one thought that was an issue. Think of John Kerry mm-hmm. not understanding how the misleading, well, the windsurfing and the misleading swift boat attacks on his yes. war record. Yes, would not, resonate. Oh, no, no one will ever buy that. Oh, yeah? Right. And the same thing here. Deval Patrick defended cop killers as a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, he takes positions on issues like immigration that are well to the left of Nancy Pelosi, of Barack Obama. He, uh, a staunch opponent of the death penalty, Obama and Clinton mm. were so for So similarly, it. as we often, a, lo- a lot of analysts will say, uh, Charlie Baker, even with his 70% approval rating as the most popular governor in the land, couldn't make it through a Republican primary. He well, couldn't run for president no. for the same reason on the opposite end of the spectrum, now, right? I, I think, uh, you know, if Deval Patrick is on the New Hampshire primary ballot in early 2020, uh, will his name recognition and his capacity to zip up there and, and bring in troops from Massachusetts to help him campaign, could that help him become a top-tier candidate? Okay, I'll buy into that, although I'm, I'm still not sure he could win it. He could uh, be a bit tender in, Ma- in New Hampshire because of the proximity. Anywhere else, yeah. forget it. Iowa, South uh, Carolina, no way. never mind. It, it, and and uh, furthermore, to the extent that the Democratic primary electorate has drifted to the left, witness Bernie Sanders' success last time around, well, Patrick, since leaving office, has been working for what many people on the left consider uh, the home of the of the great Satans in American life, Bain Capital, the uh, giant uh, investment fund. Now, he's been doing uh, supposedly socially conscious investing and more power to him. Uh, but still, you don't think his opponents are going to throw that in of his course. face? Well, they can just use the playbook of what was used against Mitt Romney. Right. 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 That Bain is a company that comes in strips a place bare, strips pensions, fires workers, and walks out with whatever profit is left. It just makes you think even, you know, all of those things, of course, but I just picture the voter in New Mexico or Idaho who from Ted Kennedy to Mitt Romney, Michael Dukakis, would just say, you cannot be serious that this party cannot nominate yet again, neither party, another Massachusetts politician. Uh, I just think people across the country get tired of it. Look at the relative success that Donald Trump has had. Mm -hmm. uh, Spoon feeding his base a steady diet of the most boilerplate right-wing cultural hot buttons known to man, kneeling NFL players, uh, horror stories about uh, savage uh, illegal immigrant gangs, all the red meat. now, okay, he, he's still under 50% total approval, but he's in the low 40s. Gone I up. mean, considering the, the quality of, of his performance so far, that's that shows the success of that kind of politics. I mean, Fox News would have a field day with Deval Patrick's record. And you know what else? We've had this conversation, Paula, about Elizabeth Warren running. Yes. Uh, I see zero evidence uh, to convince me that any significant number of people around the country 
Republicans, Democrats, or independents are looking to Massachusetts, that great shining beacon, home of <laughs> John, Bill Belichick. We're the city on the hill. I mean, uh, looking to them, look to us, I should say, as the saviors in 2020, not happening. Having said this, let me just add one final caveat. I'm also the rocket scientist analyst who saw uh, uh, Donald Trump of vilifying John McCain a couple of weeks yeah, after he announced and said, oh, that was it. he's dead in the water. So please, no wagering. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. On to the issue of sports betting, gambling. This time we're not talking about casinos, which has really dominated the political scene here in Massachusetts over the last couple of years. We are talking about Delaware legalizing sports betting. And the question, John, is are we next? And you went to one of my most, you know, this is improper English, but my favorite expert in Massachusetts because he's from a very unexpected location. Yeah, Father Richard McGowan is associate professor in the finance department at the management school at Boston College, the Carroll School. Uh, And he's an internationally known expert on legalized gambling uh, and its effects on people, the way the industry works. He was uh, a voice of reason throughout the whole process of uh, bringing uh, casinos to Massachusetts. There was even talk of putting him on the gaming commission. Yeah, that never never quite happened, but... uh, uh, and in a way, you're right, our focus here is on sports betting. Uh, now that it's really starting with Delaware jumping in the pool this week, other states are ready to jump in as well. Massachusetts, of course, lagging behind. But uh, if it comes, when it comes, what would it mean to the budding casino industry here? And overall, uh, what the impact more broadly on our state would be financially and otherwise. And it's interesting what he has to say about the formerly Wynn Resort Casino that's coming, now the Encore Boston Harbor, and what they're going to have to do to make this thing a success. So, uh, Father McGowan, Delaware is ready to rock and roll with sports betting this week. What happens next? Is it a rapid fire fall of the dominoes as far as states around the country are concerned? Well, the three other states immediately that are going to do it will be Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. I can't imagine. Well, obviously, New Jersey's going to do it. Uh, now, New Jersey's ironically the most conservative because I think right now they they strictly want to keep it at, at um, they want to keep it at the, at the racetracks and the casinos somehow to help the casinos. Uh, Delaware's not talking about that at all. They're going to put it online through their lottery right away. So it's it's a very very. It, I would probably say you're going to see a classic case about how states compete with one another for the gambling revenue. So how is that going to work just logistically if if they've legalized gambling? Online, that means people from other states where it's not legal are going to be able to get on, right? I mean, how is that going to work? Well, now, for instance, in Jersey right now, you can you can you you can do the casino games online, but you have to be in the state of New Jersey. You I can't, see. You can't be in Pennsylvania, and, and so they they do they can block you out. Now, whether or not Delaware wants to block you out is going to be interesting. And I also think what's eventually going to happen is, first of all. Um, if you think about it, there's two ways the states can legalize this. They could say, all right, you have to go to a betting power 
and which would be either a casino, a racetrack, or you could do what they, what they do in Great Britain and Ireland, where you have betting powers on the corners and do like that. Hmm. Or you could go online, which is what they do in Spain. Um, and there, the state lot, I mean, the state government actually runs all the sports betting. So that's going to be the other interesting thing is will the lottery commission in Massachusetts say, you know what, this is really going to be our games right now are just about level. They're not making any more revenue. Give, give sports betting to the to the lottery and let the lottery run. There's all this talk from the casino industry about, oh, we embrace this. This is going to be great. Casinos are the logical place for sports books. But as you're pointing out, that is not necessarily going to be the case. Are these casino operators whistling past the graveyard? Well, first of all, any if they were really honest about it, in Las Vegas, which obviously is the, now the mecca of casino gambling, Less than 4% of the revenue is sports book. Okay. So this is not going to be. Now, the only reason why I think they would want sports book in, for instance, we'll talk about the Encore Boston Harbor, right? Uh, the new one. Probably the one reason why they would want sports book is to have people come in and then, then use the rest of the casino. In other words, to me, it would be almost like a lost leader, but that's not where you where you make the money on 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 the sports book. It's it's online, and right now, you know, the vast the vast majority of money that's being uh, bet online is sports gambling. Well, as we've seen with the explosive popularity of uh, sites like DraftKings uh, uh, and and that kind of thing, uh, the, there appears to be you're the expert, so you correct me, Father, but. Uh, it, there appears to be a generation gap here with traditional casinos appealing to an older crowd. The younger crowd likes its online action. They like it on DraftKings and other similar sites. Uh, are we talking about a generational uh, industry dynamic here where younger bettors get used to getting their action online and down the road that spells trouble for casinos? Or, or is that too alarmist? I would say, first of all, I mean, you're right in the sense that the younger generation likes to do things online if they can. They, the reason why they would go to a casino is depending on the shows that the casinos have, the other types of restaurants and other types of entertainment, and then whatever gambling activity they'd want to do. But they would certainly not be slot machine people. And so there's where the, for instance, again, not to overdo it, but the Encore Boston Harbor. Where the typical casino right now in Las Vegas has around 70% of the floor space for for slot machines. Right now, from what I gather, the Encore is going to have less than 40%. And the crowd they want to go after are the people who want to play online games in the casino, uh, play against each other in the casino, things like that. So, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, they, but the, the the slot machines and things like that. That is that's that's the much more the older crowd, and that is not the younger crowd. So the draw is going to be come to this upscale, glamorous looking place to drink, see shows, eat, and you can engage in the online online gambling within against other people who are there in terms of this style, what can we learn from, you mentioned, the UK, Spain? You remember the Brits basically in the 1960s legalized sports gambling. Right. Because the British government was desperately looking for revenue. And so their use, it depends on what you get used to, John, like everything else. They are being the local population. 
population there. So there's no generation gap there. They all like to go to the corner and place their bets on everything. But again, in Great Britain, it's a lot more than the sports betting. You can bet on everything. You can bet on the color of the queen's hat, right? Well, you could bet on the name of the ba- the baby and all the right. other kind of stuff and you know, what she was going to wear for the, for the wedding and all that stuff. Where in Spain, it really is sports betting, period. They don't do, they don't do anything else, but it's online. And so I, I would think in the U.S., it's going to be a combination of things, but various states. And I think, but it, it, at least in Massachusetts, I can't, I can't imagine that the lottery commissioner right now is thinking to himself, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on that. Because the traditional lottery games are, are, are at best the staying level, and they're not, they're not increasing. And so this would be a way of boosting, making the lottery profitable again. Well, uh, which brings me again back to a very local question. Uh, the, our listeners here who don't gamble are thinking, why the hell do I even care about this? And the reason is for the revenues. Cities and towns benefit from lottery revenues and in theory uh, g- expanded gambling, casino and, and uh, revenues from the slot parlor in Plain Ridge. I like to say that because they go crazy when I call it a slot parlor. Uh, uh, you know, the, these are going to be important new revenue streams for right. the state. So... Uh, in the meantime, now, I'm hearing you say that uh, the Wynn Casino, excuse me, Encore, Encore. is uh, de-emphasizing slots. Aren't slots generally the highest profit margin for a casino? The one-armed bandit? Well, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. But I think also there's a way of making, for instance, in Las Vegas right now, less than 50% of the revenue on a casino comes from gambling. The rest of the revenue mm. comes from people going to shows, eating, shopping, and all this other stuff. And so clearly that's the model that that Encore is going under. What they're now calling themselves is full entertainment. And and it's not just entertaining yourself by gambling. They want to to offer you everything. And Mm -hmm. that's that's where they're going to. And I would imagine that's the future of gambling. What I'm getting at is I fear for these these forecasts of all the benefits from a site like Encore. I don't doubt that it'll rake in a lot of money, at least early on, but you're downplaying your biggest profit margin action with the slots. Uh, They've already rolled back what I understood to be the basic win concept of super high-end luxury shopping within the casino. Uh, They're restricted in the type of entertainment they can offer by state law, which is designed to protect other entertainment venues. It's in Everett overlooking, it doesn't overlook the Boston Harbor, it overlooks the stinky Mystic River. All these factors, call me a pessimist if you want, Father, but this seems to me to be adding up to a diminution, if you will, of the outlook for Encore. I would probably yeah, I would probably still say Encore has a better outlook. I would feel sorry for MGM in Springfield, I'll tell you that much. That's going to yeah. be an interesting song. Why do you say that? Well, I would just think that I think the Springfield, I just, I, again, I don't, I, I just don't see the typical person who lives in the Boston area, we'll say within the 495 area saying, oh, I just can't wait to go out to Springfield to have to be entertained. Whereas, let's face it now, you go up I-93, the first thing you look over there and you see this huge monument that, that uh, Encore is going to be. We'll see. I mean, I, I hear you, John. I think it, I don't think the tax revenue is going to be quite what they think it is going to be, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, um, in the beginning, they'll certainly do very well. Now, 
the key thing for for Encore is whether or not they're going to get repeat customers, which I would imagine they will. We'll see. Well, we'll always have Kino, right, Father? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all right, Johnny, I mean, you're disappointed. They're this thing about it. The state would much prefer you to buy a lottery ticket or Kino because they make all the money on that. Right. Whatever profit there is. Whereas, let's face it, with the casino, twenty-five, they're going to get 25% of the revenue. But it's not, they, you know, let's face it, they're mm-hmm. not, it, it's, it's an interesting thing, which is all the more reason why uh, we're, who gets, who ends up getting sports gambling is going to be very, very, very interesting. That's wow. for sure. Father Richard McGowan, Boston College, thank you so much for your time. Go Eagles. Great to talk to you again, John. Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. One final issue to discuss, John, because... I know you so well at this point. I know a lot of your likes and dislikes. This interesting piece in Boston Magazine. They've been known every now and then to smash through bedroom windows. This summer, to get a better understanding of how many of our feathery, occasionally aggressive birds are currently mingling with us, namely turkeys, the state is asking for your help in counting them. And so we thought you would be the perfect person to volunteer to to count the brood they need turkey spotters to record whether they see hens Pults is that how you pronounce the babies p-o-u-l-t-s i guess jakes who are juveniles or toms the adult males um and if you're not an expert at discerning discerning which is which they have a helpful guide so oh. john would you like a summer job would you like a little extra thing to take up your days and help count turkeys i know you love them so you know what I am an animal lover. <laughs> Over, you are. Generally. This I can attest to. Okay. You love your dog. And I don't condone violence of any kind, let alone interspecies no. violence. Interspecies. However, the only turkey I'm interested in counting is the one that I put in my cart prior to Thanksgiving <laughs> Day, all nicely slaughtered and feathered Smothered and trimmed and, and trussed. Yeah ready to stick in that oven and have my wife do her magic. That's the only count, turkey count, I'm interested in participating in. Every good child of New England knows Benjamin Franklin loved them and wanted the turkey to be the national symbol as opposed to the eagle. What is it you hate about them the most? Well, I mean, that's hard to say. I mean, they're ugly. Let's just well, put that you know, aside. Well, I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. Okay. I don't go on physical <laughs> they appearance. They scare me. They scare me when I uh, see them. They're foul-smelling. Yeah. They're foul-tempered. Nasty. Uh, they're nasty and aggressive. They'll hurt you. Violent. Yes. Uh, they're violent to each other and to humans. Strut around like they own the place. Um, and when you eat them, uh, you get all drowsy and can't stay awake through the football game. <laughs> so those are just my top pet peeves about turkeys. John, that's, that's all of nature. They in particular. All, I'm telling you, it all smells bad. It all. It's but all it's their look. Each other. It's constant. It murder. is their Pig, look. Pigs aren't nasty and mean. No. Really? No. Really? Pigs are lovable. I'd like to have a pig a as a boar as a pet. You. Well, a wild boar. Oh. Of course, <laughs> we know about wild, wild boars, boar. right? Yeah. <laughs> we work with a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> we mean B O A R. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> well. If you need an extra, you know, assignment over the summer if you get bored, we know yeah. what you can do. I'll tell you what, if I hit any with my car, all right, I'll phone it in. You'll tell the, to state, the state you've yeah. counted I one. I found one. Put me down for one. <laughs> 
Okay, so John, we want everyone to subscribe and to tell their friends because Studio BZ is available everywhere now where you can get a podcast. You could listen to Studio BZ in Antarctica. Think about that. That's true. You could be climbing the Himalayas and be listening to Studio BZ. We have a lot of former Massachusetts residents who are Florida residents, for instance, retired Red Sox fans. They listen to our BZ programming and friend read the of mine, website. They would love this. A friend of mine went to Boston Calling, the, the uh, rock festival mm-hmm. over at Harvard a few weeks ago. Uh, saw a lot of people with headphones on, went up to them, asked what they were doing. They said they were listening to Studio BZ to drown out the, the crappy music it's emanating true. from the stage. Never mind so. Eminem up there. And, and I'm the listening. Of America, they had to, to drown them out. Did you know That's that Studio right. BZ was at Woodstock? It didn't make the cut. <laughs> it didn't make the cut on the album or the movie. But yeah, between but sets, everybody at Woodstock would listen to Studio <laughs> BZ. And that's why that generation turned out the way it did. On vinyl? <laughs> that's right. I got vinyl. Exactly. exactly. So but, our Twitter handle is yeah. at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. And I'm at Keller at Large. And you can Find Studio BZ everywhere you download podcasts. Uh, But, of course, you can go to cbsboston.com and uh, search for it, and you'll be able to find it and download it from there. And thank you to all our subscribers. As Paula says, tell a friend we want more, and we want your feedback as well. So get in touch with us. And uh, thanks to all our guests, too, for taking the time to speak with us. And as we say every week, thank you very much for listening to Studio BZ, Mm. which we are now, after today's episode calling the Nate Plus Ultra of local podcasts. Have a good week. Whatever that means.